Please stand, if able, for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and is found on page 1014 in your pew Bible, or you can follow along on the projections behind me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. faces life's challenges as a champion. Uh, Her greatest challenge, of course, is cancer, as it is with a handful of those at Westgate today. She just received her first checkup, MRI, and they didn't see any cancer, but they saw some other things that they're concerned about. So she lives under the shadow of cancer returning. The tamoxifen that she's taking is affecting her, as the doctors say, in six months, how it's usually affecting people in three years. So it's harming almost every part of her body. And of course, one of the side effects is other types of cancer. In addition, uh, we're always concerned about our family. This past week, through a strange thread on Facebook that was passed to us, it seemed as though our son, uh, one of our sons, was going to be defamed and possibly fired. It's not the case, but it's something that weighs on her. She carries the burdens deeply in her heart of the problems that her friends endure. Her job is difficult in that she's such a gifted teacher, yet the environment that she has to teach under really uh, suppresses her greatest teaching gifts. And of course, she has the daily concerns of life. Today, she, uh, this week, she shared with me that all what's going on in her heart, and then she said, but what really centers me and gives me peace is I simply tell myself, Jesus is enough. And that's really what uh, the message of First Peter is. And I trust that this morning we will hear how great the salvation is that Christ brings us and that it is enough. Our Father, only your spirit can communicate in such a way today that that reaches each heart in different ways, precisely where we live. Only your spirit can bring us 
the full assurance of what's said from this pulpit this morning is true. Only your spirit make it come alive in our lives. So you be the one who speaks this morning. Amen. The title of our series in 1 Peter is Reflecting Christ in a Post-Christian Culture. And so it leads to the question of how can Christians stand out in the Western culture today? Uh, sociologist Rodney Stark, whom I've quoted before, wrote a book about the rise of Christianity, and he cited a number of factors in how Christians stood out and drew people to God because of the way they were a light to the world. One of those ways was their compassion and care for the helpless. And while even loved ones would flee dying people, they would enter in at the risk of their own lives. But because our Western culture has really been grounded on Christian values, today we see secular people helping humanitarians, pouring themselves out, pouring their finances out to care for the helpless. Another factor in the early church was their multiculturalism and how the cross united cultures in a time when those cultures were at odds with one another in conflict and hostile. But today, multiculturalism is highly valued. We all want such unity across races and ethnicities. Another way the Christians stood out is their high value in of women when women were so devalued. And today, of course, we see many, many movements lifting up women. Another factor was the way Christians responded in suffering and persecution as they were led into the arenas. They would sing and praise God. And it seems that that is a way in which Christians can stand out today. How do we handle our suffering? How do we handle it if, when we are persecuted, we can stand out? And so Peter is addressing a, a church that is living in different provinces in the Roman culture. The greatest persecution is about to come, but it's already there in some fashions, in some ways. The Christians are being marginalized and ridiculed. Some uh, can lose their jobs. Sometimes properties might be taken from them or what's impending is imprisonment and perhaps even martyrdom. And so Peter is speaking to them to give them the, the truths that will help them stand strong. And essentially the message is your salvation is the greatest thing possible. And if they realize how wonderful and how great salvation is, everything else in their lives will fall into the right place. They'll have the right perspective. Uh, just kind of imagine you go to a, a fair and you see these incredible booths of things you can win. And over here, there's, there's cell phones. And you try at that, and you, you miss. And over here, you can win a car. And, and people are walking away with cars, but you lose. 
And then there's a booth that actually offers a free college education to you or any loved one. And the person in front of you wins, and you lose. The person behind you wins. You try again, you lose. And so you go over and you kick the barrel, and, you, and all of a sudden now your foot starts to swell up. You're in great pain. And so someone comes along and gives you this lottery ticket and says, uh, here, I see you're hurting. Uh, here's a lottery ticket, it's a winner. And so you, you get this and you say, okay, this guy said it's a winner, I don't, I don't know, is it a winner or not? And uh, if it is, I don't know what we want. And you show it to your friend and your friend gets more excited. And he said, hey, this, this is a winner. And I think it's a really good prize. And so you make your way up to the lottery official and you give the ticket to the lottery official and he says, you are a winner. You just won one billion dollars. Now, do you care anymore that you didn't get the cell phone or the car or the college education? Uh, your foot may still be throbbing, but you're not going to complain about this day in your life, are you? In a sense, that's what uh, Peter's leading us to in this passage. He's saying, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're experiencing, if you understand you've won the grand prize of salvation, that that ticket was given to you, it'll change everything. And so Peter is going to share two things. One, we're going to delve into much more deeply next week. What is that prize of salvation? And it is much bigger than you think. But today, we're looking at that lottery official, the one who finally convinces you, I have won. This is for real. So Peter opens, and he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. So here's your lottery official saying, you win. And Peter's saying, do you realize it's not just people who believe in the salvation. It's those who are closest to God who know how great this treasure is. And so prophets who get revelations from God are much more knowledgeable about us. They're closer to God and to an understanding how great this treasure is. And Peter says, uh, the prophets prophesied about this, and they saw that it was such an incredible treasure that they searched it out, and they inquired of God. They went to every source they could. I'm sure they, they scoured their own writings. They went to other prophets. They scoured their writings. They talked to rabbis, and they talked to scribes, and they talked to anybody who might have knowledge, trying to find out that knowing that this salvation is so great, so when is it going to happen, and through whom is it going to come? 
It's, it's like a, a new, uh, newlywed who, who loses her wedding and engagement rings. And she's searching frantically everywhere. She's going to look in every possible place to find those. And so that's what the, the prophets were doing. They looked in every possible place. Why? Because this salvation, they knew this salvation was so great. And I want to just give us a, a little sampling of what they knew and what they understood. We look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel says, there's a time when I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you. They saw that this salvation would bring personal transformation. It can lead to making us the people we desire to be. We all know we're not what we should be. We all know we're not what we want to be. We all know we fall in different ways when we don't want to. We know we fail to do things we know we should be doing. But here's the promise. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to transform who you are. And, and where you're hardened, you're going to be softened. And not only are you having this personal transformation of heart, but the very spirit of God is going to come and live within you. And then Jesus quotes the Old Testament. The prophets knew this. Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we see here cultural transformation. Those who were the outcasts, those who were the overlooked, those who were the beggars who couldn't make their way, when this salvation comes, it is going to be reaching out to them and ministering to them. It's going to turn the whole social order upside down. The blind are going to be able to see. Captives are going to be set free. Those who are oppressed is going to, are going to be freed from that oppression. And then we see also in Micah 4.3, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, how we all long for peace. The salvation is going to transform the world. See, these are not just the desires of Christians. These are the desires of every heart. In the Garden of the United Nations, there is a sculpture of a man beating his sword into a plowshare because that's their dream of world peace that Micah spoke of. The title of that sculpture is Let Us 
beat swords into plowshares. It's not a direct quote of Micah. Because it isn't we who are able to accomplish this world peace. That is what God offers in salvation. That is the salvation he's going to bring one day. Yes, we should all appreciate the work of peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We should all work toward peace. But do we really believe that humanity can accomplish it on its own? The United Nations has been in existence for what, 70 years. Is there any more peace than when they first began? But it is our dream. It comes with salvation. It comes by grace. 1 Peter 1.10 Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. It doesn't come through our works. It's going to come through the grace of Jesus Christ. One day he will make all things new. One day there will be this world peace. And it comes because of what Jesus Christ accomplishes on the cross when he takes not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin upon him and defeats the God of this world. It is by grace, not by our works, that this will come. And the prophets had this hazy understanding of how that grace would come. Isaiah 53, he says, Surely he, this coming Messiah, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. <clears throat> I hope we never become immune to that truth because we hear it so often. I hope these words, this truth of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, each time we hear it, reaches deep into the core of our souls. And we are renewed once again what God has done for us in Christ and what is offered to us by grace. But the prophets couldn't fully understand it. It's like they saw this giant, glorious mountain in a distance, not realizing that it wasn't one mountain, but it was two mountains separated by a valley. Jesus is first coming where he is going to suffer, and by his grace, the new covenant comes, and the foundation for his second coming is built. It is at the second coming that the fullness of this salvation is going to be experienced. No, they didn't uh, fully understand it. 1 Peter 1.11. The prophets are searching. They're looking every possible way, 
at every possible source to understand the time, the purpose. And then we hear, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but us. They finally understood from God that the time and the person, it wasn't going to happen during their lifetime. I can imagine. Is there something you've ever looked forward to, you just anticipated, couldn't wait, and then it's taken from you at the last second? Multiply that times 100, and you probably get the sense of disappointment the, the prophets felt. Why? Because they knew in a hazy way how great this treasure was. But I'm sure there is at least some sense of purpose and peace in knowing that you and I would be the ones who get this. Do we treasure salvation the way the prophets did treasure it for us? Do we understand it? Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is saying to his disciples who really don't get it at this time in their lives, that the prophets, they, they just heard about it. You're getting to see it unfold in Jesus' miracles and in his person and in his teachings. It's right here in front of you, and you disciples aren't getting it. How about us? Are we getting it? When the disciples finally got it, what happened? Peter is crucified upside down. Paul is beheaded. Stephen is stoned. Tradition tells us that every disciple, with the exception, of course, of Judas and John, were sentenced to death and executed because of their faith. John Hus, while he was burning at the stake for his faith, probably captured what they all felt when he said, I have never th thought nor preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. Today, I will gladly die. And what he's saying, this treasure is so great, I can die in peace. But this treasure is so great, I will die so that you can hear it. So, the prophets who are getting direct revelation from God treasured it greater than any grand prize. And who's closer to God than the prophets? The angels. And so we read, it was revealed to the prophets that they weren't serving themselves but you and the things that they have now announced to you. Things preached those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. 
The angels have direct access to God. Who knows God and God's plans better than angels? The angels, we can assume, understood God's plan from before the foundation of the world. They knew what great treasure salvation was. And it says here, they long to look into salvation unfolding today. So they anticipated it throughout the, the history of the Old Testament. And then they see it come. And we can me imagine them on the, the edge of heaven looking down on Calvary and seeing it come to fruition as Christ dies for the rebellious, dies for, for all of our sin, and says to those who are crucifying, Father, forgive them. And they see the glory and the beauty of God's love poured out in that moment in history, and they rejoice and glorify God. And then they must burst forth in praise as Christ rises from the dead in all glory. And now they're watching salvation work out in our lives. They saw it happening in the disciples, the transformation, their martyrdom, their sacrifice, and through the ages. And today, they're peering into how salvation is working out in our lives. What are they seeing? Ephesians 3 gives us a special view into what they're looking at. It says this, Paul says, to me... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? It's the angelic realm. And what Paul is saying is, the church, the unity of the church as Gentiles are brought into harmony with the Jews, that unity displays the wisdom of God in heaven itself. The angels are watching the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Think of our culture today. We would have hoped that the shootings last weekend would have humbled all of us and brought us all together as one. It's done the opposite. Both sides proclaim, we want unity. We're trying to bring unity, but it's you who are causing division. And then what do we hear from each side? Name calling. The attribution of the worst possible motives to anything the other side says or believes. Each side claiming the other side is like Hitler. These are the leaders of our country who are saying, yes, let's be united. What if somebody stepped into our culture today and brought everybody together as one where all the hostility was gone all we did was love each other support each other champion each other 
we would say that person is the wisest person who ever lived. That's what God did in the church of Jesus Christ. He broke down the dividing wall and he brought those who were just as hostile toward each other, if not more so than we are today. But God broke through it with the cross of Jesus Christ and the angels are looking in that. And so it, it leaves the question for us always, not just in Westgate, but us with other churches. Are we displaying the wisdom of God to the angelic realm into the world of what the cross can do in bringing unity where we live in such a way that our love for each other transcends our love for ourselves? That's the power of salvation that the angels are hoping to see. Who's closer to God than the prophets? The angels. Who's closer to God than the angels? The Holy Spirit. It says, it was revealed to them, the prophets, they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that they're being announced through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. The message of salvation does not come from men. It comes through men. It does not come from men. It is the very voice of the Holy Spirit. It is the very voice of God himself. And he proclaims the wonders and glories of salvation. And he proclaims that that salvation comes through one person, Jesus Christ. But do we have confidence? Do we stand in confidence today that Christ is the only way of salvation? Or do we begin to have questions? Because our culture around us looks at people who say Christ is the only way as narrow-minded, perhaps mean-spirited, xenophobic. And they even, some might even call the gospel hate speech. And so those are the voices we're hearing around us. But are we listening to them or the voice of God? And the voice within us says, I know a lot of good people who are atheists and agnostics. And, and they serve others better than I serve them. And how can it be that God doesn't accept them? And, and what about the Jews and the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, some of them live more moral lives than I live. Some of them seem more passionate and sincere in their search for God than I am. How can I believe that they're not accepted? And we hear it from, we hear it from our schools and on our campuses. We hear it in the, the read it in the papers and magazines, in the newscasts and the talking heads in our movies and even in Congress 
that such a view is not acceptable. It's antiquated, it's unenlightened. Those are the voices we hear outside and inside. And we heard a human voice say, Jesus is the only way. But it's not a human voice. It's the voice of God himself. It came to us through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is in heaven. There's two reasons we need to stand on the exclusivity of Christ as the only way. The first is that it is the message of the Holy Spirit. It is the message that came from God. Whether we're hearing voices here from earth, those are earthly perspectives. Whether we're hearing our own hearts, it's an earthly perspective. But the Holy Spirit comes and gives us that heavenly perspective. It's the argument Jesus used with Nicodemus when Nicodemus wasn't getting it and seemed to be resistant to what Jesus was saying. And Jesus essentially says, you're struggling with earthly things. How are you going to get heavenly things? I come from heaven. I've been there. I know what heaven is saying. I know the truth of it. And I've come to you to share it. And that's what's happening today through the Holy Spirit. It's the heavenly voice. Secondly, we need to cling to the truth that Jesus is the only way because if he's not the only way, then he isn't sufficient for us. He isn't enough. Every other religious leader claimed that their teaching was the way. Jesus claimed that he himself was the way. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. J. Sidlow Baxter put it this way, fundamentally our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come to merely show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point to the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we make Jesus just like any other teacher, we remove all that gives us life. When we compromise on the exclusivity of Christ, we compromise on the sufficiency of Christ. Then he's not enough. He only has teaching to offer. Have confidence in the message that is assailed today. The gospel of truth is true because the Holy Spirit has spoken it. When you share the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit sharing the gospel. Let us never be coward. Let us never lose confidence in that gospel and in the salvation that he offers. When we get the ticket, we want to know who's telling us we're the winner. It's those closest to God 
those who got direct revelation from God by the Spirit of Christ. It's the angels who, who practically live in the presence of God, and it's God himself through the Holy Spirit. Next week, we will look at what that grand prize is, what that treasure is. But let's end with just a sampling of it. And I do want to say this. If you were listening, if you were singing the words in the music, of the hymns we brought today, you were getting samplings of that treasure. And we're going to, I'm going to ask you, if you believe these words, to join me in reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, the answer to the question, what is the only comfort in life and death? If you believe this, join me, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, redeem me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that in all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. In other words, Jesus and his salvation is enough. Father, burn this truth into our lives. Amen.